Good evening and welcome back to another episode of Please Call Me Crazy, brought to you by Free People Radio and powered by our favorite sponsor, TireGit.com. That's TireGit.com. You have to buy tires from somebody. You might as well buy them from us and help support the movement, help fund the movement. We believe in the freedom of movement, and that's exactly what the establishment wants to take from you now. I am your host, Royce White, here in the belly of the beast, Minneapolis, Minnesota, for episode number 98, I believe. Is that right, Tanner? 98? Episode number 98. Today we have a very, very special family and friends guest episode. Today we are joined by none other than Rich, the infamous Rich. Rich, tell the little, tell the people a little bit about yourself, um, your your background. To, well, first of all, I wanted to bring you in today to talk about economics. I think a lot of what I see in the media right now is. Um, leaning towards the sensational, let's say. I mean, we live in sensational times, and not to say that um, economics and some of the things that you're going to talk about with finance isn't isn't pretty sensational in in and of itself. Um, However, you know, there's just so much, so much out there uh, on the Internet, Um, and and a lot of it is pretty – pretty sensational, even, you know, almost obnoxious, I'd say. Uh, and I don't I don't mean that any of these cultural wedge issues aren't important. You know, you pick one. There's so many cultural wedge issues. You see CNN and Fox News every single night selling cultural wedge issues and profiting off of cultural wedge issues. But the real meat and potatoes, the real the real bare bones of of what American citizens should be concerned about in many respects is is these these sort of economic scams that that have been run against us or that are continuing to be run on us um so i thought it was important with all the things we've been talking about lately in the show whether it was maui and then the possibility of direct energy weapons and you know the pentagon says they they have direct energy weapons and you got boeing and lockheed and all these other uh, advanced weaponry technology military industrial uh, contractors and we got UFOs flying all through the airspace now. Everybody and their and their mom wants to, you know, talk about UFOs. And I'm all for that. I think next week we may, in fact, even dedicate a few shows just to UFOs because the news is so is so uh, heavy, uh, especially on social media for people people my age. But um, I I came, you know, into the public into the public view recently during the George Floyd situation here in Minneapolis by bringing people to the Federal Reserve has been one of the calling cards of, of my time on the public stage as a, as a political figure, they would, they would call it on Wikipedia, I guess. So uh, I'm, very, I'm very into uh, American citizens having the financial literacy to understand, one, their own financial, uh, you know, their own financial situation, but also the institutions that govern over them financially. So with that being said, Rich, tell us a little bit about yourself. Introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit of your background, and and then we'll go from there. Sure. Thanks, Royce. It's good to be with you tonight. Um, so a little bit about my background. I I got into uh, on onto Wall Street back last century. I started on Wall Street um, in the late '80s, early '90s, um, and I started in the, in the world of foreign exchange and foreign exchange derivatives. Um, so derivatives are just options or futures that are traded on an underlying product. In this case, it was the foreign exchange market. Um, and I started on one of the exchange floors in Chicago, but the firm uh, that I worked for was bought out by one of the was bought out by uh, a Swiss bank, 
which then decided to to move a lot of us over, all over the world. And and I had studied Japanese as well as finance in, in college, and so I was moved over to Asia, initially to Tokyo, um, then to Singapore with a stint in Hong Kong as well. And I spent the better part of the 90s in Asia um, working and running not just foreign exchange trading operations, but also um, ultimately Asian emerging markets, et cetera, um, responsible for all of the Asian um, businesses for a couple of different investment banks in in um, the global investment banks are you know where I was heading the Asian operations. I decided to move back to the U.S. in 2000, just in time for the tech bubble to crash, et cetera, um, and moved into uh, work at, in in hedge funds and spent the next <coughs> excuse me the next 20 years working in hedge funds, a couple of different hedge funds, um, running a number of different products, et cetera. Um, and again, moving overseas. This time, I'd moved overseas to Europe and spent some, some time, four years living in London to run the European operations there. And then after 30 years of working on Wall Street, um, I, I decided it was time to, to kind of focus on a little bit different thing. And, and I was surprised because I'd been started to teach um, at my alma mater, University of Illinois. I started to teach there when my daughter went there and I got re-engaged a little bit. I found that, you know, I started to teach and work at the same time and it was just a little bit too much. And so I asked myself, what do I like doing better? And I was actually a lot happier after a day of teaching than I was after a day on Wall Street. And so I decided to do that full time. And uh, now I'm going in my fifth year of teaching full time. And so um, I teach finance, a range of different subjects from things that I, you know, things that I built my career upon, such as derivatives or investment management or portfolio management. But I also teach a class um, called Finance for Non-Finance Majors. I'm with you on terms of financial literacy. I, this class is geared towards people that, that aren't business majors, that aren't finance majors. It's English majors, theater majors, biology majors, whoever it is on campus that wants to learn a little bit more about how they should maybe invest their 401k or how, how they should consider a rent versus buy decision or how they might want to start or fund their startup business. And so I'm just trying to help those students learn a little bit more about finance that just can, then can help them out a little bit, kind of get through the economy. Um, and so that's that's the bulk of what I've been doing. And then now, as I've been teaching the last several years, I've gotten a lot more engaged in terms of social media. I'm pretty active on, on LinkedIn and Substack, again, with a goal of what I call demystifinance, which means I just want to demystify finance and make it a little bit more accessible for the regular person out there. And so, you know, let, let's last week we we ran a uh, a special where we basically replayed um, G. Edward Griffin's uh, dissertation uh, presentation on the creature from Jekyll Island, and he talked a lot about the inception of the Fed. And and you know, over the last three to four years, PBS Frontline, as a as a broadcasting or organization, has spent a fair amount of time covering the Federal Reserve. Uh, and and what they call the power of the Fed, and, and one of the phrases that's popular on Wall Street, I guess, is "Don't bet against the Fed." I'm not a finance guy, but I'm watching these people like a hawk. Um, so you know, the Federal Reserve has become a, a very big piece of of the conversation politically, at least underneath the surface. I mean, you know, everybody talks about their own personal finances, especially around political season. How much money's in your bank account? What's the cost of food and gas? Blah blah blah. But, but how the whole system kind of works. Give us your take on the Fed and, and just kind of how, how the monetary system works from a macro level 
that that most people may may not understand? Sure. I mean, if we go back 1913, right, when the Fed was created the same year that the income income tax was um, was put into uh, into effect, right? And so essentially, the 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 Federal Reserve. Um, there are some and many that would believe that the Federal Reserve was kind of created essentially to to um, you know to make sure the income tax is working through the system, and and that's you know one of the ways that we've kind of lost a little bit of control, if you will. Um, but I think for the better part, if we look at from that inception date really up and through up to and through the financial crisis, the Fed did what many thought it was intended to do. It was there to kind of smooth out business cycles. It didn't eliminate business cycles. It was there to smooth things out because the Fed, by you know, Congress gives it a dual mandate. The two the two mandates are basically growth and inflation. And the way they measure that growth, if you will, is um, the unemployment rate. They want to have full employment. The go, you know, the government obviously wants to have full employment. Consumers want to have full employment, right? right? And so that's the Fed's mandate is to try to maintain full employment. And the other one is price stability. And so for the most part, no one really um, cared about the Fed. The Fed would move its short-term interest rates around to smooth out the cycles. And when things got extreme, you know, the Fed got a little bit more involved and, and, and took control. And we saw that in the late 70s and early 80s when inflation was out of control um, for you know a lot of different reasons. Um, we didn't have energy independence at that time, et cetera. Um, and, and that kind of led to wage price spirals, but inflation was out of control. And so the Fed stepped in and was very, very aggressive. Paul Volcker came in and, and essentially crushed the economy to bring down inflation. Um, and, and, and that, I mean, that was part, again, part of their mandate. And so then we, that, what's, what that started from essentially 1982 until last year was a 40-year bull market in bonds. So yields kept falling from double digits, you know, 17, 18%, all the way to 2021, we had the low in the 10-year treasury yield of 50 basis points, right? So it was a 40-year bull market in bonds. And what that meant is that, that was, in some ways, there was a positive to that, right? That lowers the cost of financing for everything. It lowers the cost of financing for American businesses. It lowers the cost of financing for equities and companies that want to issue equities. That helps people's portfolios of savings. It lowers mortgage rates, et cetera. So there was a, there was a positive to that, right? Um, and, um, and it, it, but I think what's changed after the financial crisis, which has really brought the Fed into play, is that the Fed has become a lot more active. It used to be that the Fed would only use interest rates to, quote, smooth out the business cycle. And then what we've seen since the financial crisis is the Fed using its balance sheet as well. And that's what I think has a lot of people saying the Fed's maybe overstepped their bounds. They've used what we call quantitative easing. Um, extraordinary measures, I think Ben Bernanke referred to them when they first came in. Mm -hmm. um, and, and not only have they not shrunk since we, they were in, um, put, in, put into place, um, but the, you know, they've, they've actually grown quite considerably, right? right? The Fed's always had a balance sheet. The balance sheet was very rarely used. Uh, I think you, if you look at it, it, it essentially was in, in the single digits as a percentage of GDP um, for, the, you know, for, for the history of the Fed. Um, post the, that period, um, we moved up to about 15 to 20 percent um, as a percent of GDP post financial crisis on these extraordinary measures. And everyone said, OK, um, that, you know, that's not great. But at the same time, if you remember, post financial crisis was a pretty ugly time. Right. People were losing the houses. They were losing their jobs. And so in times of crisis, I think who was a Rahm Emanuel that said, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. Well, uh, they didn't let a good crisis go to waste and took control. But people were pretty happy with it. Right. Now, what's happened, though, is that the expectation was that when things got back to, quote, normal, 
that that were going to go back to a single digits as a percent of GDP, and and would again just it was extraordinary, and would just not be something that we talked about anymore. However, it never really came down, and every time the Fed tried to bring it down, there was some market turbulence, and and the Fed would immediately kind of grow its balance sheet right back. Um, then post COVID, we went from 15-ish percent of GDP up to 30 percent, doubled again. Um, you know, it, it added more to the Fed balance sheet than we did after the financial crisis, all in a very short period of time, um, right after COVID. And, you know, again, that was a lot of people panicking, lockdowns, et cetera, so they kind of allowed it to happen. Um, you know, the Fed started to try to unwind some of that um, earlier this year, and we had a little bit of a mini banking crisis in March, and immediately the, the balance sheet right, went right back up. And so while the Fed has been removing some of this stimulus via raising rates, its balance sheet, which is running at 30% of GDP, has not come down. And that's, I think, where a lot of people say that we have an activist Fed that's really con trying to control the pricing of risk assets and essentially, in some ways, kind of distributing the risk to where it wants to see fit. Um, choosing to buy mortgage-backed securities when it wants to, choosing to buy corporate bonds when it wants to. By law, the Fed can't buy equities, so it doesn't really buy equities at all, but it doesn't at all. But the, the relative pricing will, of course, impact the equity market. And if we did a simple overlay and correlation of equity prices versus the size of the Fed's balance sheet, you would find that there's a fairly tight correlation since the financial crisis. Before that, there was no correlation whatsoever. So I think if we go back and go look at pre-financial crisis, I think most people would say the Fed largely did its job. It no, in fact, you know, in those in the, in my first 20-ish years, if you would, on Wall Street, we never really talked about the Fed. The Fed was there maybe at extremes, and in, otherwise, you never really worried about it. Mm -hmm. The last 10 to 12 years on Wall Street, that's all we talk about is the Fed. Mm. No one really talks about anything but the Fed. And so I think that clearly the story and the narrative has changed from one where the Fed was only involved at extremes to where the one where the Fed is involved in every single part of the what's pricing in, in the asset markets on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I think that's a, a pretty meaningful change. And that's where I think a lot of people would now say that the Fed has clearly overstepped its bounds. Okay, let, let's let's go back here and kind of and unwind this for the for the layman. And and I hate to do that because people always tell me, you know, bring it down for the for the layman. I really really can't stand that. But around these financial issues, I know a lot of people are going to sit there and go, I have I don't even know what you guys are talking about. You know, I I have, I have no clue. Um, yeah. Let 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 let's talk about what what it is that the what what underlies. What underlies the Fed's? What underlies a, 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 a financial term like inflation? What underlies the Fed's mandate to um, be at full employment? Um, and and in that in that respect, because I know you worked in foreign markets a lot, is it is it your theory of the case, or is is it your assessment that in the '70s, as the Fed started to become more active? coincidentally is around the time where America made moves into foreign markets. Um, did these moves into foreign markets affect the overall employment? And, and, you know, were these, were these things kind of convoluted in some way that, that, that you, that you can see from looking back at history? I mean, everybody talks about us going into China. If the feds mandate is to, is to, you know, maintain full employment, obviously it's political sway or, the political sway on it uh, will come down to bear on the American people, but there seems to be this entire other economy that works outside of the scope of America's borders, America's political governing bodies, and America's, uh, let's say, 
uh, financial institutions, right? I mean, there's this whole global market that the Fed is playing in. So, so tell us how that works. You know, if, if the Fed is supposed to keep employment high, I mean, isn't it, wouldn't it be the Fed's mandate then to go into the Nixons and people like that at, at the time and say, hey, if you start to ship our jobs to China and then if you reward big companies, Wall Street, for for going to get cheaper labor in China, you're going to inflate the, the you, you know, you see what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I think, um, well, we got to we got to look at it. There's a few things there to unpack. Okay. So let's just let's start with where the Fed kind of gets its legal mandate, if you will. Right. The, the Fed's legal mandate for. Uh, comes from Congress, right? Congress, people elected by the people. And so essentially the people, in theory, have given the Fed its mandate, okay? We can argue or discuss whether or not Congress is actually doing its job or not. And I mean, that's I think that's a fair question. Yeah. But that's ultimately where, that's that's who instituted and started the Fed. Um, and, and, and that's who gave Fed its marching orders, if you will, and said that we want you to focus on full employment and price stability. Um, and if you think about it, you know, that's through time, that's those are the two issues that the, that the U.S. people have faced, given the Great Depression in the 1930s and the, and the rapidly high inflation in the 1970s. And so you can kind of see the logic for where that comes from. Not every central bank has the same mandate. If we look at, for instance, the European Central Bank, um, which is it's obviously a slightly different union because it, it sits on top of an organization that has 27 different countries. Right. But if we look throughout Europe, their mandate is pretty it is sold. It's, it's inflation only. Um, that's all they care about. They don't have a full employment mandate. Um, and, that, and, and that leads to different policy choices, right? So for instance, right now, um, inflation is still very high in Europe while the economy looks like it's about to go into recession. In fact, it's going into recession because inflation is high, yet what is the ECB doing is raising rates. And it's doing that because it only has a single mandate, which is to bring down prices. Um, and famously, it did this right before the financial crisis when the economy was going to recession, but prices were high. It was still raising rates, even though it was pretty clear to most people at that time that that things were going to get pretty ugly pretty quickly. And so that that mandate, if you will, um, kind of leads to policy decisions. Given that the Fed has this dual mandate, these trade offs between um, in employment and prices, it has a little bit more flexibility in what it does, right? So even though inflation is stubbornly high, and we got an inflation report this morning, which moved back higher, and, and it's above the Fed's target. Um, the Fed has a target that it wants inflation to be around 2%, right? Um, and and that's let's look at it in terms of CPI. The Fed might use a different measure, but CPI, I think, is in the news. I think a lot of people are familiar with what the, cons um, you know, the CPI basket, um, consumer price inflation, what, what it means. Um, and that 2% isn't just arbitrary. That's essentially, if you look at for the last 130 years of America, of America the average inflation we've had is 2%. Um, and so that's they're trying to keep it about average. OK, and when, if it's below 2 percent, they're trying to ease policy to bring it back up. And if it's above, they're trying to tighten policy, bring it back down. And that's where we are right now. So what's the trade off then between jobs and inflation? Kind of getting back to your point then of when jobs were getting shipped overseas, not just in the 70s, but even during NAFTA, et cetera. The 90s, yeah, um, exactly, yeah. You know, should the Fed have been going to the to Congress or going to um it goes before Congress twice a year, but should it, you know, could the president have called in the head of the Fed to talk about that? Sure, I'm, the, the head of the central bank is an advisor to the president. Um, it has to report by law to Congress, and so it is responsible. Um, and I, I don't recall all the, all the diff different, those, those testimonies are called Humphrey Hawkins testimonies after the senators have put them in place. 
I don't recall exactly what was being said, but it was it was pretty clear though that um, in some ways the jobs moving overseas, uh, and you remember at that time we had really really high inflation, so the Fed was trying to bring it down. Those jobs moving overseas and the lower costs that would result actually made their inflation job easier. So it's not not entirely clear to me that the Fed would, on the one hand, full employment was going to be more difficult, but on the other was going to help them in terms of inflation. So there was a trade-off there. And so I, I, I would think that there was probably some discussion about what the trade-off looked like. And there was something, and not to get wonky on you, but there's something that academics look at called the Phillips curve, which is the trade-off between employment and inflation. And it suggests that when employment gets when unemployment gets too low, so when employment gets really full, we're naturally going to see inflation because people have choices of where they want to go to work and they're going to ask for higher wages, et cetera. Um, largely what we've seen through the last, empirically the last 20 years or so is that hasn't really been a trade-off that way you would ex expect the way that we saw in the 60s and 70s. And a lot of that, that, that lack of a trade-off, that lack of pricing power for employer for employment, if you will, the lack that consumers didn't have the ability to go and ask for higher wages had a lot to do with the fact that we were looking at this global labor pool. And if you ask for higher wages, they just ship your job off to another country. Um, and, and so there, you know, so that, that, and is that in some so ways it, that what, what, argument has been debunked a little bit. Well, and well, there's, there's two questions. One, yeah, you know, in, in my circles, we talk about in my immediate circle, when we talk policy, especially economic policy, and we look at the history, you know, you, you can't you can't overlook the impact that the unions had on corporate America shipping its jobs across the water as well. And that while I think it's I mean, unions are an entirely different different rabbit hole to get into. Are you for are you against? Should the citizens have the right to form a union? Absolutely. I mean, it's just they should have the right to do so. Do unions yeah. have unintended consequences? Absolutely. And and one of the unintended consequences that many working class Americans didn't didn't really take into account is that the union gained so much power or unions gained so much power. They effectively justified corporations and, and Wall Street sending these jobs to places that were not well unionized <laughs> yeah. um and and so you know th th there's a whole question there of did the unions push too far and if the unions did push too far who may have been behind that i mean you know was that organic uh, uh, uh an, an, an organic thing that that happened in the in the workers uh movement or or were there some other forces that that were at work there that understood that that would happen um and and then again, you know, there's a there's a there's a give and take there as well. You could argue in the same sense that the corporation at the time would, had free reign to be extremely greedy under under uh, American uh, corporate policy uh, at the time. And and they you know, and then you know, it's funny because we talk about people talk about making America great again. And I would say, by many metrics, and you look at the safety, uh, national security. Self-sufficiency, the independence of America, um, the, the manufacturing, so to speak, uh, and a number of other things. The the '70s, this time period where things started to change, was the time period. Maybe the '50s. Okay, you could say maybe between the '50s and the '70s, from an economic standpoint, is when America was kind of at its greatest, uh, coming off of World War II, and we had this huge industrial, you know, 
movement. We had huge, huge prosperity uh, all around the world. We had huge global hegemony with, with the dollar, newly founded global hegemony with the dollar. So there was all these great things happening at that time. And, and right away, I mean, as soon as we kind of gained this stability, um, you know, this, this sort of radical globalization starts to happen and, and we start to lose it. I mean, I mean, almost as soon as we get it, we start to lose it. And if you look at the time, get a little bit more in the details, it, it's not as rapid as I'm making it, obviously, on camera. But, but um, you know, it, it definitely came and went. And, and now we're completely dependent on, on other markets for any number of things. Can you talk to me a little bit about how um, you see America's dependence or, or lack of independence um, having a huge effect on, on Americans' uh, economic prospects? Econo- you know, they're, they're, you know I, I hate to say their bank account. You know, because to me it's like, yeah, you have a bank account. You have how much liquid cash you can get your hands on, how much it costs to pay your bills, how much it costs to feed your family and fill the, the refrigerator, gas up your vehicle. But but even more importantly, I think, you know, we've tried to introduce this idea that there's a value to your citizenship um, and that 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 value to your citizenship is economic. But but it, it's other things as well that sort of encapsulate uh, the, the net value of being an American citizen. Um, talk to me about just your view on globalization in general and how it's how it's affected American citizens over the last 40 years. Yeah, that's a good that's that's a Good question. And um, that globalization on net, um, I would say, has been a positive for Americans on net. Now, that doesn't mean it's been a positive for all Americans by any stretch, right? And th- and let me tell you why I say that. Um, and 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 I'm not. And, and and things. The pendulum does swing too far at times as well. And we, as we saw, I think in COVID, um, it's, it did had it had swung too far, and it, it is adjusting. But as much as, as a lot of jobs were lost, and they were lost primarily in the Midwest, right? When, uh, you know, I'm in Chicago, you're up in Minneapolis, we, we felt it in the Midwest, more so than any other part of the country, for sure. Um, but what did the, America as a country, what did, it, what did it get in return? It got a lot of cheap products back, right? It got a lot of cheap products back from the rest of the world, um, initially from, from Mexico, then the production was shipped to Asia, and, you know, China, then, then Vietnam, et cetera. Um, and, and then, you know, you had Walmart come in and all of its production overseas, Amazon took over from you know, that mantle in some ways and Americans were able to buy a lot of stuff, right? We were able to buy a lot of stuff. And, and in some ways, if you measure your kind of quality of living, your, um, your standard of living based on how much stuff you have, Americans are doing better now than they were doing in the 1950s or sixties or seventies in terms of how many Americans have two cars in the garage or have more than but, one but, television. But, but Rich, or, wait, wait, you know, one, one no, second. Just, one second. I'm just saying it, that that's a one way you can look to measure it. But, uh, no doubt, no doubt. But isn't that sort of the, the Fugazi already, I mean, in, in, the whole, in the whole deal? I mean, part of the Fugazi in, in globalization, in my opinion, is this idea that, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's part and parcel of what becomes a problem with, with economics and finance, especially big finance, global finance in general is the metric of a person's quality of life. It, 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 if it's driven by this sort of radical materialism, and I know it gets hard, right? When you're talking numbers and especially you're talking business and economy and finance and, and, and markets and products and trading and goods. And it, it gets hard not to talk about the material aspect of it. Cause I mean, it's all material, material measures. Um, yeah. but, but in, 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 in many respects, I mean, 
the products that Americans got um, were really did they really improve the quality of life? I mean, you're a teacher, for example, and it, it, it would seem to me that like a lot of the products that Americans got in exchange for this globalization only decreased the amount of people on average that would have any basic understanding of the type of things that, that you discuss. It's why I sit here as the host of the interview and think to myself, they told me when I ran for Congress that most people don't read above a fifth grade reading level in America. And yeah. I don't know when that started. I don't know how long we've had that literacy crisis in our in our country. But if that's the case around regular literacy, then I would assume financial literacy is somewhere in the same ballpark, if not worse. I would venture to guess it's much worse. Yeah. But but didn't a lot of these products that we got, and and for example, a, an institution like the Fed or or other other institutions, other governing bodies, wasn't it incumbent upon them to to, to kind of assess the overall health? of the country against the economic potential and say, hey, yeah, we're going to get a lot of cheap uh, micro microwaves and, and toasters from from China or Japan or, or wherever, the, wherever it was. But the yeah. huge trade-off is that the American people are going to are going to become dumb. We're going to become, you know, uh, consumer whores is, you know, is, is for lack of a better, better term. Um, I mean, do you see that trade off from an, you know, I know you come from an economic lens, but yeah. is, is that something that we could we could look at and say needs to be considered? I, I think I, I don't disagree with you that that um, literacy, especially financial literacy, is, is, is quite poor and needs to be improved. I, I guess I don't see the direct linkage between that and globalization because I think there's different things at, at play. And one thing I was going to say is like, okay. There, there's the trade-off that we have between the jobs that were lost in one part of the country largely, right, the mm -hmm. Midwest, mm -hmm. um, versus the the total country benefiting from from more products, if you will, right? And and then yeah, whether or not we should be materialistic or not, I, I'm 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 willing to side with you on the fact that I don't think we should be, and I should don't think we should be so focused on that. But I'm just watching what Americans do, and Americans are consumers by and large, right? What Americans are saying, our economy what, yeah, is consumption. So. What what Americans have chosen, and this is important. Yeah. I, I I would agree with you here that, you know, in in all fairness, we get to sit here as commentators or as people who teach and and look at people in leadership. It's very easy to look at people in leadership, but really. We we're best looking at ourselves. I mean, that's an old adage that I think never never gets old, right? Is look yeah. in the mirror and and the American people, we the people, we chose globalization. I mean, we we did choose this radical materialism that allowed our jobs to be shipped and even the unions, right? I mean, if you look back at the whole union movement, um, when the unions when the unions pushed as far as they did, and the company said, okay, we'll take our products over here there should have been a massive union uh boycott i mean if their if their if their belief was ideologically driven like down yeah. to the bone then the unions would have said hey we're not buying any products that come from china either i mean the entire yeah. workforce is gonna is gonna go you know balls deep on the ideology and they didn't do that they took their high paying union wage jobs and they took the cheap products that came from china from the jobs that went away from them which was you know, is a real indictment of the American people. Keep going. I just wanted to add that in no, for people I, I think, watching. Yeah, your point's taken. And, and, and when we think about those, I mean, 
Listen, I, I think everyone, like you said, has a right to form a union, and, and the union has a right to collectively bargain for higher wages for its members. But I think it's it's a trade-off, right? It is, there's no there's no obligation that the company has to pay those, and if the company can source that lower, that's a risk that the union takes in asking for higher wages, in my opinion. And and sometimes it can't source them cheaper. Sometimes it can source them by moving to moving to Alabama or Tennessee. It doesn't even have to move to China, right? And so you move to non-union states, and we've seen that with the automakers, et cetera, where they've moved to non-union states. Um, and so, you know, I think. That, that's just that's a risk that you make, right? When you when you say to, we're going to get together and we're going to ask for something more, you have to be willing to like take the risk of that. And I think some of that was outside of the control. And then, like you said, this globalization, which I think, as I said, clearly happened. I think had gotten to a pendulum. The the word I think as a country is clear that it got to a pendulum. Pendulum is like we do need to have some sort of industrial base. We can't be entirely reliant on other countries for everything that we have, right? Um, and I think that is something that's that's fairly clear. And I think there's two trends there that are kind of going on, right? And, and one of them is this idea of, of of rationalizing supply chains. So companies that you kind of go back and you, you can pick on Jack Welsh and GE, but he was kind of the leader of it at the time, saying that you know he wants to make things in, in the cheapest place you can. And 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 that's you know kind of goes back to uh, to get all wonky. There's a, an economist back uh, several hundred years ago. Uh, uh, David Riccardi, who called Riccardian equivalence, is that you know, and and, and comparative advantage is like that you know, if country A can make something cheaper than country B, country A should make everything and send it to country B, and then country B should make whatever it's really good at, right? And so, the I, I argument on that basis, from an economic theory standpoint, is that the U.S. wasn't really good at making cars. Other countries were better at making cars. What was the U.S. really good at doing? Is really good at making movies. We made a lot of movies, right? That that industry took off. The country, the company, or the country was really good at at financing startup companies, etc. And you look at Wall Street, you look at venture capital, you look at technology, etc. The U.S. did a lot of that, and and so the U.S. was doing the things it did very, very well, and it was outsourcing what it didn't do well to other countries. Now, the education within that that that's kind of wrapped all around that, and and the, so. When there's those adjustments, and, and and I'm I'm not one that thinks the government should get involved at all. I think I kind of would rather have the government not involved most times than than not, because the government, in my opinion, typically doesn't do things um, better than private enterprise can. But when we have those painful adjustments, where that country overall may benefit, but certain pockets of the country do not benefit at all, in fact, are in worse, much worse shape. That is a case when the government should step in and say, okay, now what are we going to do? Our, how can we retrain and requalify these people for these jobs that we think are going to come because America is good at doing some other things, right? You know, could we have trained more people in the Midwest um, at filmmaking, at finance, et cetera? And I think that we could have done a much better job in that. And that's where there's the failure, I think, is in looking and identifying that situation and 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 um, and not fixing that that wrong. Um, when we had the chance to do it several decades ago, and now there's, you know, now we're kind of we're, we're a couple of decades behind, right? Um, now, when I talk about the pendulum swinging back, we we are seeing the pendulum swinging back. We're seeing companies trying to rationalize the supply chain, saying I don't want to just make it. It's not just where I can find the cheapest labor, but I have to think about transportation costs. I have to think of reliance of my supply chain. We saw during COVID and some yeah. of the supply chain disruptions yeah. that we couldn't get things when we wanted, and so. Now you're starting to see this trend trend towards onshoring or nearshoring or friendshoring, as they kind of different companies call it different names, 
And really what it means is they want to make things closer to where they sell them. And so if they're selling things in the U.S., they want to make it, you know, in the U.S., but maybe it's in Canada or Mexico because we've got the trade agreements in place. It's going to be somewhere in North America. You can in walk Europe, there. it's not going to be made in Germany because it's expensive to make it in Germany. Um, it's going to be made in Eastern Europe where things are cheaper and then sent into Germany. Yeah. And, and things will still be made in Vietnam and China, but it'll be sold in Vietnam. It'll be sold in Asia overall. And so companies are still what they're doing is they're spending more money to build multiple manufacturing plants around the world instead of having one engine of manufacturing that kind of service the globe. And, and that's a trend that will take at least a decade, right? We're, uh, we're probably three, maybe five years into that trend. Um, and it's going to take 10 to, you know, 10 to 15 years, right? We, it took a, it took 10 to 15 years for us to, to globalize everything. It's going to take us that long to, um, to deglobalize it in many ways. Now, will that fully benefit American workers? Partially, yes, right? There'll, there'll be more jobs for Americans because of that, but the, the 10,000 person factory isn't coming back. If that factory is coming back, as we've seen them built around the country, one, they're going to where states are offering incentives to, to build that, but two, they're they're being done with a lot of robots, et cetera. And so there's, there's instead of 10,000 people, it might be several hundred people working in those factories, but it, it's not the factories that we had in the 1970s by any stretch. Well, um, just yeah. to kind of add on, I know, I know I've gone on here a little bit, but there's, a, there's another no, trend bro. underlying all this as well. And that's a, a focus of, of company managements on stakeholders versus just shareholders. And so 1972, Milton Friedman wrote a piece that talked about how company managements should only focus on maximizing shareholder value. Um, as kind of the, the famous piece, and people want to point to that. Um, and, and, and say that that gave CEOs carte blanche to just really focus on lowering costs and driving stock prices higher. Yeah. Um, and that's what happened. That's not exactly what Milton Friedman says, by the way. What Milton Friedman really said was company managements work for the owners of the company, right? They are, they are agents. They're not principals. They work for the owners of the company. And so they should do whatever the owners of the company tell them to do. And that's what that's what Milton Friedman was saying. And and if the shareholders are saying we want to drive the value of our shares up, that's what management should do. What we are seeing increasingly now is that shareholders are saying, yes, we want prices, we want our share prices to go up, but we want you to focus on our communities. We want you to focus on the environment. We want you to focus on on uh, corporate on, on uh, employee well-being. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's all the stakeholders involved in the process. And so. We've seen this. We've seen this with the business roundtable where 180 plus CEOs have signed on to say that they are going to focus on all stakeholders, not just share price, not just in lowering costs, but on the communities in which they work, live and work on their employees and on their customers as well. And we've seen more of a trend of that, but we're still, in, again, in the early stages of that shift. And so there's there's a lot of things that are shifting away from that kind of 1970s, 80s mindset towards lowering costs and globalization to kind of a more holistic view, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it, in the, in the, yes, for sure. And on face value, right idea, right idea on face value. Who's implementing it is certainly, certainly a concern for a lot of people and, and, sure. what, and what, their, what their motivation is. I mean, because in the, in, the, in the inception, you say, okay, like you mentioned, do whatever's best for the stock price, drive the share price up, which really meant do what the owner says. The owner has an economic incentive to maximize profits. I mean, that's just what we saw. Or, you know, just, you don't need an incentive. 
just basic human greed. Let's just say the level yeah, of altruism sure. and humanitarianism was not once what it now projects itself to be yeah. today. And I say project because, again, I mean, there's there's a huge concern now that um, the global corporate community has had a, a, a significant swell in their in their uh, monopolization on any number of, of markets uh, across across the world and that they have this sort of collective ideological mindset that that they're trying to frame up. Not that individual people won't break off and do their own thing and, and have the ability to be very impactful, influential, uh, you know, have a, a lot of success uh, in their own lane. But there certainly seems to be a, a, a serious effort, an effort that's more promoted, maybe that, that's promoted maybe now more than ever to bring the corporate community together along some of these more holistic ideological viewpoints. And I think the real the, the telltale sign is is something like the corporate equality index. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's the, the corporate equality index, and it's a it's a you know third it's a it's a private. I don't want to call it a think tank. It's a private organization that that was funded by Soros, and I don't mean to you know go conspiratorial because certainly the New York Times doesn't want me to say George Soros's name at all, but. But anyway, his his foundation funds the Corporate Equality Index, and the Corporate Equality Index is is acquiring many many the allegiance of many many uh, uh, global corporate corporations around certain societal issues that have been deemed important. Some of what you said, much of it is race and and um, you know equality of gender and sex. A lot of it is the environment. Those are kind of the two railheads. Of, of that of that push and so you know now we're in a dangerous position where um, the corporation sort of gets to tell us how to live right and, and you know they have this ability to impact policy which has long been considered a problem I mean the corporate lobbying yeah. of the, the politics in America has long been consensus a huge issue right but now they're kind of coalesced around these 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 uh these particular issues, whether it be race or, or race and gender, race and gender together or or the environment. And and so now we're seeing a penalty placed on corporations who won't fall in line. And I just want to ask you, like in a completely not a different direction, but but as a slight tangent, um, to go back to the Fed and the interest rates, I'm starting to see somewhat of a correlation between the Fed's impetus to raise interest rates and bust out the middle market to make more companies have to sell, either sell upstream to bigger corporations or or just straight bust, bust out altogether uh, and file bankruptcy through the interest rates. And as that happens, don't we see a swell upward, upstream to bigger box companies, even a, a bigger sort of globalization that is anchored around these 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 ideological, uh, these these ideologies. I mean, you know, again, the interest rates. Uh, for example, <laughs> anybody who has a loan right now, you can tell. Maybe I'm wrong, but anybody who has an open bank loan, and and they they work off that working capital uh, of, of the bank loans, or, or they have a line of credit, 
and and right now, you know, the interest rates and then coming off of COVID and, and the supply chains being, I mean, isn't this all a matter of national security in some sense? Number one, but number two, they're going to bust out the middle market. How dangerous is it from, from your vantage point uh, as somebody in finance to have a vulnerable middle market? I'm not talking about the middle class. I'm talking about the middle market. I'm talking about yeah. the mom and pop shops that, that, you know, used to make America what it is now. If everything becomes Walmart, don't we lose a certain sense of sovereignty economically as, as citizens and local communities in that, in that regard? Yeah, I, I think that I think that's a fair, that's a fair point, and and we are clearly seeing in, in what I mean. A lot of people will point to the fact that the economy is stronger than expected than many people, myself included, expected it would be this year, and the stock market is stronger than many people, myself included, thought it would be this year, et cetera. But if you look underneath the surface, um, it's a few companies that are doing very very well, and that's driving everything, right? If you look at small businesses, if you you know, 99% of companies are small businesses, right? Small businesses employ almost 50% of all workers in America. You know, so small businesses absolutely matter. Um, small businesses are struggling. We, we, we see that in the small business surveys where they tell us they're struggling, where they tell us they're not going to hire people, where they tell us they have to raise prices because they can't, can't afford to kind of keep doing work. We, we, you know, we see the banks saying that um, they, they're going to make credit more difficult to get. And that's for all companies, not just small companies, but it impacts small companies more than big companies, right? And so, yeah, small businesses are absolutely getting hurt. And, and the Fed has said it's going to slow the economy, intentionally slow the economy to bring inflation back to its target. Inflation is still well above its target. Unemployment rates are still very, very low relative to history. And so it has the kind of the the the, the wiggle room on its own, again, going back to its mandate, since job then since unemployment's low and inflation's above its target, you know the Fed's mandate is to bring inflation lower, and it's saying it's going to do that by slowing the economy, and we're seeing that in the small companies. We're not seeing that in the large companies. Um, you know, is is it you know, is that is it the is the Fed trying to squeeze the small companies and not the large companies? I think it, I think the I think the Fed's tools are very blunt tools, and I don't think they're they they have the precision to be able to do that. I think they're trying to slow everything, and it's just that the small small companies are going to get hurt first. Um, and, and if the Fed does what it w- intends to do, I think everyone ultimately will get hurt. But we're just seeing it happen in the small companies first. If I yeah. you know, I, I I think the monetary policy is such a blunt instrument that it can't with precision try to target certain certain parts of the economy. It's just well, trying to slow the economy overall. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, yeah, that's that's true. That that's true of all policy with some respect because people have a, a tad bit of arrogance around around the ability to, to to affect you know unintended consequences people people are not not so good with obviously we're, we're human um but it, can, can i just jump in real fast though yeah. to your point i sorry yeah. to interrupt but yeah, when, when we think of the two different types of policies right we have monetary policy and fiscal policy mm-hmm. right um monetary policy is intended it's like i said it's very blunt it's intended to smooth out the economy to the extent that it can. It's not perfect. Um, when we get to extremes, when it's when the economy is too slow, it's it, it, the goal is to step in and try to spur it back higher. When the economy is running too hot, the goal is to try to bring it back down. But it's very blunt. It's, it's going to have winners and losers in all that, yeah. just because that's the way the policy is. Fiscal policy, Congress, which is a slower moving body, which does which can't step in and do things on a weekly basis or a monthly basis as the Fed can. Um, Congress takes longer to act, but Congress does have the tools 
to be a little bit more precise and to say, these people are getting hurt, these people are getting help, let's balance that out. And, and Congress has a little bit more precision in its fiscal tool, fiscal policy toolbox. Yeah. And so if there's precision needed, um, I would probably point to Congress more so than 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 the Federal Reserve. No, no doubt. No, the Congress has been has been found uh, very lackluster on on the job around any number of issues, but but especially monetary policy. My my question is let let's let's pull the lens back even further, if that's even possible. I mean we we're pretty we're we're up there we're we're high up there in the altitude for people. Let let's let's make it let's pull it back further, but make it more simple. At the time when the Fed was instituted there was definitely a very different um, attitude towards work, human beings, work, and, and the prospect of energy or growth economically across the board. Why? I mean, in the early 1900s, we were, the technology was so far behind where we are right now. I mean, how far we've come in 100 years is almost... It's unbelievable. It, it it actually is quite unbelievable to think you had to, you know, rotary phone, <laughs> and now I can sure. I can Skype with you uh, from Minneapolis to Chicago instantaneously. Yeah, M- a modern marvel to to say the least. Comes with consequences. Comes with a lot of unintended consequences. I'm not anti-technology, but what I'm saying is there there seems to be this this runaway train now that even in the earliest days of the Fed, people couldn't have couldn't have perceived and and now people have to ask the question especially people who are leaders in in economics and, and finance and and policy um what is too much technology right i mean uh like part of the inception of the fed or as i as i remember as i recall or as, as i've read or part of the entire industrial boom was hey we're going to give people credit because it's a net positive for everybody, right? I mean, we're going to have growth. We're going to be able to build. We're going to be able. People are going to have jobs on the way. They're going to be able to get money, you know. And and the whole economy grows. And, and people have trouble understanding that there there's your individual economic growth, but the economy as itself can grow. And that's based on human production and human energy and human population and all these other things. Um, but but there was a real. Uh, uh, I want to say spiritual investment, at least in, in the fact that human beings were going to be a part of whatever it was that was done financially, corporately, globally, economically, et cetera. Now we've come to this place technologically where it's very obvious. There is a, there is a path, there is a vision out there. There's a horizon we can see where humanity is less involved. So from an economic standpoint, although isn't this a moment in history where it may be incumbent upon policymakers, government, and even people who are in the private sector to step up and say, hey, business to a certain point. But at the moment where we start lapsing humanity, we have to ask serious questions. Um, because, for example, I mean, you know, there's a movie coming out. What's the movie coming out this week, Tanner? Everybody's there's a lot of uh, with the robots, with A.I., I forgot. Uh, I forget what it is, but a couple. They had a few like robots at the at a at a baseball game at a at a couple at, at a football game this, over the past weekend to kind of promote the movie. I forgot exactly what it's called, but but anyway, 
AI, Ecto Farms, I mean, where we're going with technology is going to be even more unbelievable in the next 10 to 15 years than it was over the past 100 years. And a yeah. huge piece of that is we don't need human beings to work. I mean, yeah, human beings and work has a business and economic function, but there's also a, a very human spiritual function, you know, to, to so is there a way to factor that in and still and still maintain some of the fundamental aspects of, of economics that we've built the country on. Yeah. I mean, that's a, uh, that I, I would, that's a tough question. I, I, yes, I, I mean, I think any, any business leader, um, anyone involved in this, there, there's an ethical question, right? And then, you know, I'm, I'm a member of the, the charter, you know, the charter financial analyst society and, and, a, and a big part of our charter, a big part of our mandate is, is looking at ethics. And so, yes, I, I would agree that there's a huge ethics component to, to AI, to robotics, et cetera. They, to, you mentioned Ecofarm, anything we're doing, um, you know, biologically, et cetera. We always need to be asking ourselves that, that question. Um, um, and, 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 there's, and, you know, there's, there are so many studies out that would suggest that, that artificial intelligence is going to massively disrupt um, the working population for sure, right? It's going to make a few people incredibly productive, but it's going to cause a number of other people to lose their jobs. And so in some ways, it's a microcosm, um, maybe it's a macrocosm, maybe it's big, bigger than what we saw, of, of what we saw with globalization, right? Some people are going to do very well because of that productivity increase. Companies might do well, et cetera. Cities where AI is really kind of uh, focused might do well, but there are a lot of people that are left out. So how do we then kind of take care of those that are left behind? I think. You know, I can certainly see a, a very negative outcome in the way this plays out. But, you know, it, there's there's a, a positive spin on this or not spin, but a positive way to interpret this, I think, is comparing this to the printing press. Right. Before the printing press, which was this revolutionary technology when it came out, you know, very few people had access to books um, and, and books that were around were, were kind of written by hand or copied by hand, et cetera. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so a lot of people weren't literate at that time because no one could really afford to own a book. Then the printing press comes out and all of a sudden now everybody could afford a book and then literacy went up. So AI, there's a lot of people that don't understand how to code. There's a lot of people that can't code to get a, to get their questions answered. But, you know, AI also makes a lot of this technology, a lot of this power, a lot of this data analytics, a lot of the computing power that we have more accessible to the common person because now instead of having to write a line of Python code or, or R code in order to get an answer back from a computer, um, I can just type in into a, a chat GPT field the same way I would in Google and ask it some questions and start to get some answers. Now, it's still fraught with a lot of problems. I can assure you that, right? Um, and, and, and you're not going to always get the right answer. Um, there's the hallucination that these engines can do, et cetera. Yeah. And we're seeing subsequent iterations of of these um, of these large language models, um, you know, some in some ways getting better, in some ways maybe getting a little bit scarier. But I do think that there's there's a power that comes with it. But we do have as a you know I wouldn't put it necessarily entirely on the private market. So I would say the private markets are the best to handle it. But we, as a society, we absolutely have an ethical question around how we want to see this deployed. Um, ultimately, I think, and then it kind of goes back to some of your other questions before, is you know. If we see companies you know, acting in an irresponsible fashion, et cetera, you know, as consumers, as potential employees, et cetera, we, we do have in some ways the ability to vote with our wallets, to vote with our feet. If we don't like the way a company's acting, we shouldn't buy the products, right? If we, and I see it with a lot of my students. If they don't like 
the mission of certain companies, they, they won't even consider working there. They'd rather not work than work in a company that they, that they don't believe in. And so I do think that there's the ability. Now, not everyone can afford to do that. I totally appreciate that. Yeah. But there, there are some level, levels that we as, as consumers, as individuals um, can take. And, you know, back in the 70s, it was um, shopping only made in America type products, right? When the issue was globalization. I think increasingly we want it as consumers, we need to understand uh, the, you know, the, the mission, if you will, that companies have and are undertaking and how the products are being made and, and, and how those companies are treating um, their employees, treating their customers, treating their communities. And, and do we want to be a part of, of kind of helping fund that by buying their products or do we want to be a little bit more discerning? So I, I think there's, yeah. there's an onus yeah. on everybody involved in, in, the, in, in, in the entire, entire uh, vertical integration, if you will. And we're, we're going to switch directions here. I want you to talk more about the American economy specifically and, and, and where you see some things headed in the, in the near future. Um, but before we, we go off of this, this, this track, you know, one of the huge questions is, is being a debt society versus an equity society. And then you, you think, okay, if you're going to be a debt society, you probably don't produce a lot of things. That's probably be one way to be a, a debt society. Being an equity society would be, we produce a lot of things like China's kind of becoming, they're on their way to becoming an equity society. You know, they're already, the, the, the projection is, is already there for them to, they're an equity society because they, they manufacture. So kind of manufacturing is tied to being an equity society in, in, in many respects. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a question like that, but, but also there's the question of, of, of death versus freedom. And I think it makes the American founding fathers who were very uh, primitive, technologically they lived in very primitive technological times um you know to ask give me freedom or give me death right uh and yeah now you we see that questions like that become more prominent than ever you know because let's take a let's take a uh let's take trucking for example you know could you say that going to uh going to uh, electric uh, AI, electric vehicles when it comes to trucks would make the roads safer? I mean, is that is that a reasonable thing to to posit? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I actually would maybe even agree in some respects. Now, it may not be as safe as we think, and there'll be some kinks to work out. But ultimately, I think that computers will drive cars better than human beings will. Because, again, yep. they don't get drunk. They're not texting and driving. They're not falling asleep at the wheel. They're not going at dangerous speeds just out of their own narcissism. Yeah, okay. But, I mean, isn't there – there's a level – number one, the truckers lose their jobs. And I think that's one of the markets that we can certainly look at and say AI is going to completely shatter the American truckers, uh, um, you know, industry. Because it's just going to be – I mean – truck uh, AI cars don't need to eat sleep. I mean, you know, you, you'll be very, yep. it'll become very cheap to pay for the service, to run the service, to run the software. It's going to be so cheap. It'd be like downloading Microsoft Word. You, you have $399 for the entire company and you got a, 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 a you know, a fleet of, of uh, uh, you know, 10,000 truckers, right? I mean, basically, essentially, right? Sure. Um, so the truckers, I mean, the truckers are finished. The question is, you know, what level of freedom are we willing to give up in pursuit of this, this, uh, this aversion to death, right? And this is a very spiritual question. I know I'm asking a guy who's a, an economic genius, 
But but I like to do that on Please Call Me Crazy. If it was a guy who was spiritual, I'd certainly ask him economic questions. But but you know, what level of freedom are we willing to to give up? Because I, I'm not willing to 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 bust out all the truckers and tell them we're going to retrain them in fourth industrial revolution technology it, to be safer on the road. I would much rather people make the choice to drive and act safer behind the wheel. And if they don't do that, we all kind of deserve the consequences of that. We've done a poor job as a society that the answer isn't to, to, you know, run away from humanity. It's kind of like double down. What, what do you think about that? You know, let's take a case like the truckers, you know, yeah, we're get, we're making the roads safer. Semis are going to be ran by, you know, AI software, but you're going to lose a lot of truckers. And, and ultimately yeah. you, you may not be able to drive your own car in shortly thereafter. Right. I mean, there's that prospect as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the, the technology clearly being worked on, I guess I would say right now I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical that we, that will happen as quickly as many people think it will happen. Um, for instance, we've had the monorail in Disney world, which is a robotic train for what 50 years yet trains in the United States are still not run by robots. Um, now you, there's some frictions there, right? Um, you know, freight trains now, yeah, we have 200 car freight trains that are maybe only have three people, you know, three in individuals on board versus decades ago, they might've had more than that. And, and perhaps they should have more than that because if we look at some of the, the train accidents that are, but yeah, trains are a lot easier to run autonomously than trucks are because trains are on rails. Right. And, and when we're not even fully autonomous on, on trains yet. Um, and, and so I think that's the first thing to fall, um, in, and so I, I think it will happen at some point. I just don't see it happening in the next 10 years, frankly. Sure. Um, and and, and where we have a massive shortage of truckers. Truckers is the number one, the you know, the the, 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 the largest number of employees um, in 30 of the 50 states in the United States are truck are truckers. Right. So it's a, it's a huge it's a huge issue. I, I totally agree with you on that. And I think it's a huge issue we will face at some point. I guess I just don't think it's going to happen right away. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, if it does, I think the, the first phase of it happening would be where you would see more truck convoys where there's one truck with a driver in it and two autonomous trucks following behind that truck is kind of a convoy as a way to make things a little bit more efficient. Mm -hmm. um, and we're not there yet. Um, now, as far as like, do people want autonomous cars versus driving, et cetera, I'm all, I'm all for, I'm all for personal choice on that front, right? I'm all personally. It, you know, I don't feel safe enough that any of the cars have the right autonomous technology, but at some point I would love to have a car drive me all over the place, et cetera. I, I could care less. I don't really like driving. Um, my son, on the other hand, absolutely loves driving. He goes out and drives just for fun. So for him, yeah, that's taking away a lot of the freedoms, things that he enjoys. So I could totally appreciate from an individual freedom standpoint that that's a that's something that he's not willing to part with. It's something that me, perhaps, might be willing to part with. And I imagine if we kind of extrapolate that across all Americans, there's some that don't mind giving up that freedom. There's others for whom that is like an ex existential part of giving up their freedom. And so I think that that's a part of that kind of ethical debate that I think we, we need to have. But I think before we even get to that part, you know, I look at it and say, OK, we, you know, Yes, I know there's some autonomous taxis going around certain parts of San Francisco, et cetera. However, you know, we're only talking about in ring fenced areas where we have, you know, you know, we live in the Midwest. There, there's not a lot. You know, we, we don't even have uh, 
you know, the, the white and yellow lane marking stripes in most of the roads in Midwest are gone because of the weather, right? It's not clear to me how well autonomous vehicles are going to work in the Midwest when we can barely get them to work right now in warm weather states. It will get there at some point, but it's not clear how that will work. Yeah. Um, and and on point. top of that, you know, I, I just I, I just think that we're we're a long way from we're still a long way away on that technology. It's being worked on. Um, but like, for instance, if an autonomous vehicle gets gets into an accident, who's responsible? Is it the person who owns the autonomous vehicle? Is it the autonomous vehicle manufacturer? Is it the software manufacturer, the chip more, manufacturer, more, more litigation. the insurance company? More litigation. I, I mean, there's, there's a lot of legal issues that we have to figure out before yeah. we can even get to that point yeah. of, of autonomous vehicles on the road. So I just think there's a lot of frictions. That doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it. doesn't mean we shouldn't worry about it. It's part of this discussion around, uh, you know, this ethical discussion of, about how we want things to go. I think it's certainly worth having that discussion. I, I just, I guess... I just see that that's a little bit further out that I'm not – I think there's bigger fish to fry right now. Yeah. Okay, Let, let's talk about the bigger fish right now. Let's talk about the, U, the U.S. economy, where it is right now, where is it vulnerable, it, particularly the dollar. I, I definitely yeah. want to talk to you about the BRICS. I, I know that people are afraid, concerned, and, and they're, they're rightfully concerned about the BRIC alliance. Um, I, I see the dollar as being stronger than many people give it credit for. But I also know that much of currency is driven by um, participation, <laughs> right? I mean, the, 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 the belief in currency is just as much uh, a, a factor of a, a, a currency strength as, sure. you know, whatever markets are in, in, entangled, right? It's like there's, yeah. a, there's, a, there's a belief factor in it. And certainly there's a, there's a concerted effort right now around the world to restructure what was done in Bretton Woods Conference, that the, the United States dollar was going to be the, the, the global reserve currency. Uh, I think you see a rejection from, of that coming out of China, spilling over into Russia, and then Russia going on a recruitment tour along with China to get nations in Africa on board, to get, I mean, India's in the BRICS, but, but I would argue that right now at least Modi is, is more aligned with a more nationalist India first type of mentality, although India has all kinds of issues unique to it. But, but tell me, what, what do you think about the U.S. economy right now in terms of, of its, its health and, and stability um, and, and then the dollar as well and the, the prospect of the BRICS alliance? Um, sure, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. And so I, what would I say, first of all, when I talk about the U.S. economy? I think you have to break it into two issues, one cyclical and one secular. So cyclical, what do we think is going to happen? What do I think is going to happen over the next 12 months? I think the U.S. economy gets weaker over the next 12 months. Why do I say that? Because the cost of money has gone up considerably. The availability of money has come down considerably. Banks are going to make it harder for people to, to get money because banks are losing deposits. And under, you know, for a bank to make a, a loan, it needs to have a deposit that backs it up. And so as the deposits have left, um, the banks just can't make as many loans as they used to. And we see that the banks are telling us that. Um, the cost of money has gone up by 5.5% over the last uh, 18 months to two years. That historically has always slowed the economy, even when it's gone up by less than that. And I don't see how it's not going to slow it uh, again this time. And so I do think cyclically, I think the economy is going to slow down here in the next 12 months. Um, and that's by design. That's what the Fed is been telling us it wants to do to bring inflation down, et cetera. And I think it's going to be successful. And that's when you talk about don't fight the Fed. The Fed wants to slow the economy. It's got the tools in its arsenal to do so when it's doing so. Secularly, I think is it 
is the you know the other question you're asking, which kind of gets to the idea of the dollar, et cetera. I think secularly, the, the, the U.S. economy is weaker than it's been in its history because of how much debt that we have. And when we look at the $32 trillion of debt that the U.S. has, if you add in the unfunded liabilities that, that we have just at the federal level. $172 trillion. Yeah, absolutely. The, the U.S. economy, from that standpoint, has never been weaker, okay? And so I think that's that's something, and when we look at um, you know, the, when we look at the issues of, of entitlements, which, um, you know, baby boomers, et cetera, are, are you know, are, are a huge cohort of the population. And then that's really going to start bringing on Medicare and Social Security, you know, and in, in, uh, it's, it's going to go in, in a parabolic fashion here in the coming years. I think that's going to serve to secularly cause a lot of problems for us. And then that means that we're going to have to raise taxes in order to kind of fund that. And that's going to serve to slow down the economy as well. Now, you kind of, and so that kind of all serves to say that that the, the the potential growth rate for the economy looks like it will be slower in the future than it has been in the past. Now, when you talk about the dollar, foreign exchange is always a relative relative discussion, right? So it's not in absolute terms because it's like, okay, do I do I prefer the dollar to what? To euros? To yen? To Chinese renminbi? To Indian rupees? To Brazil, you know Brazilian real? Do I prefer it to gold? Do I prefer it to Bitcoin? You know, it's always a relative discussion that you have on that. And when I look at all of the other alternatives, many of which I just mentioned, I don't see any of those that I prefer to the U.S. dollar. Does that mean that for, I mean, currency has has been and always will be political. Um, and as you said, fiat currency, like anything else, um, you, you, it re requires confidence, right? It requires a level of confidence to want to conduct your business there. Um, the fact that we have to pay our taxes in dollars and we're paid in dollars and the U.S. government has a big military gives me a little bit more confidence that the dollar is going to be around. Um, but I don't, when I look at it versus Europe, do I think the U.S. is in worse shape than Europe? No, I don't. When I look at it versus China, a lot of China's in worse shape than the U.S. China's got a lot of debt, a lot of unfunded debt. China's population is shrinking. Um, there's estimates that says by 2100, China's population is going to be less than the United States. And so China's had this miracle of because of urbanization of the last 20 years and globalization and then urbanization within this country. And I think that we've seen the peak in China. I think China is, is going to be on this slow course lower. I think the China that we will see for the next 30 years is the Japan that we saw for the last 30 years. And, and I'm fairly confident in that. India is a completely different story. India's got very positive demographics. It's got a very large and growing population of 20 to 40 year olds, very educated, et cetera. Um, it's, it's got its own frictions, you know, historically, um, a lot of corruption in India. So I think that's a, that's a concern, but India's probably got the most tailwinds to it. But when you look at all the other parts of Brit, BRICS, Brazil, Russia, China, South Africa, yes, they maybe added Venezuela in last week, et cetera. There's no part of that BRICS that I that I would want to I'd want to own or conduct my business in personally. Will they do it themselves? Perhaps. I think you're right though. India right now is really just looking for the best deal. It doesn't necessarily want to align with those. It's just really kind of um, looking out for its own self-interest, and it imports a lot of food from from Russia right now. If it could get that food more cheaply from somewhere else in the world, I think it just there's no alliance there, and and India and China. Um, do not get along, have never gotten along. And so uh, there's no reason to think that that's a stable alliance. And so I, I look at that and say the, the BRICS is an organization that I think I understand why it's co coalescing right now, but I don't see that as, as something that's going to uh, um, you know stand the test of time. Um, you, you look at Japan's another large economy out there facing a lot of their own demographic problems, et cetera. 
Um, I just don't, I don't see an alternative to the dollar. So does, will the dollar lose a little bit of its, its hegemony? Perhaps. Will it go below 50% of world currency reserves? I doubt it. Um, and, and so I, I just don't see where there, there's a, there's any sort of cataclysmic issue with the dollar relative to all these other places, even though I think cyclically and secularly, the dollar um, has some challenges ahead of it. And But they're not insurmountable challenges if we could get the right leadership in place to be willing to answer some of these questions. Unfortunately, right now, it doesn't appear that we have the right leadership in place, whether that be in the administration or in Congress. And so that's what kind of makes me a little bit more downbeat if I look at it objectively. What 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 are some of those things that you would do uh, with, with your experience? What are some of those things that you would do if you could have the ear of a, a future president or senator or or congressman or woman, um, what are uh, or uh, the head of one of these agencies? What what are some of the things that you would deploy to to address the issues that you see with the dollar in the in the short term in the entry the the the, insur- the, the ones that are surmountable the things that we could positively impact? Well, I, I think we need to have a realistic discussion around entitlements. I'm not saying that any entitlements should go away. As we said, you know, baby boomers that have been relying on these to be there when they retire, they should be there for the, p- the people when they retire. However, there needs to be um, some restructuring of this because um, that's not something that is sustainable, right? And we talk about the hundred, and you mentioned the hundred and seventy trillion dollars. We can't afford that, and so if we can't afford it, we're not going to be able to pay it. And so. Either they're all going to go away or we can restructure it and, and, and make it so it's a, a little bit worse off for everybody, whether that be means testing for certain elements, whether that be uh, extending the retirement age to 70 or 72 from 65, you know, st- uh, staged in over time so it doesn't really um, impact p- too many people immediately. Um, and, and that even kind of filters all the way down to looking at, um, at a lot of the, 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 the pension problems that we have at the state levels, right? And so it kind of filters all the way down. It's just, it's just to me, it has to be a, 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 an objective discussion surrounded by facts that just says we can't afford the path that we're on. So what changes can we make that we can't afford this going forward without having to radically alter the promises that we've made to people? And and and. Some of those discussions can be had. I mean, and then and then I think ultimately to me, it's, it's you know, when we look at the fact that we've got 130 percent debt to GDP at the federal level, um, that's not sustainable. You know, the, the, the academic studies have been done by Reinhardt and Rogoff, et cetera, suggest that any time a, a country's um, debt to GDP exceeds 100 percent, that's when we have a crisis and we're at 130 percent. We haven't had a crisis yet, perhaps because the U.S. dollar is a reserve currency. But I think that that doesn't mean that we're we're healthy. And so I think we need to kind of really kind of think about what we need to do in terms of shrinking government overall to bring that debt to GDP lower. Um, it's It doesn't look with some of the demographic challenges that we have that we'll be able to grow our way out of it. And so when we've got too much debt, there are there are there's usually a few different ways you can get out of it. You can grow your way out of it. But um as countries, and especially the U.S., are aging, that, that becomes more difficult for us to do so, right? We can't really grow our way out of it if the population's not growing. Um, we can restructure. There doesn't seem to be any political appetite to do that. I think that's the, probably the right way to do it. We can default, um, and, and we've kind of brushed up against that with these debt ceiling debates in the past, and I don't think anyone really wants the U.S. government to default on its debt. Um, and the last way we can get out of that is to inflate, and that's the easiest way. It's the most painful way for consumers, but that seems to be the way that that our policymakers are choosing to get out of this burden of too much debt is to inflate our way out of it. And unfortunately, that's the path that we're taking. I would prefer to see us restructure those liabilities 
so that they become more affordable as a country. Professor Penn here from my bookie, and I know as a better, you demand perfection, and my bookie delivers. NFL, college football, and a brand new cash out system gives you options to bet and win all season long. First two legs of your parlay hit, cash out early and place another bet, or let it ride for a chance at a bigger payday. Join the MyBookie family for an entire season filled with daily odds boosts, same game parlays, and super contests. This season, MyBookie has a no strings attached cash bonus that lets you deposit and withdraw quick. Use promo code FPR on a deposit of 50 or more, and you can receive up to 200 in cash instantly to your MyBookie account. Bet your deposit amount once, and you're ready to withdraw at any time. Again, that's promo code FPR to claim your cash deposit bonus. You can bet anything, anytime, anywhere, only with my bookie. We're back from that ad. Um, hope you're enjoying our, our interview here with the, the great Rich. He's a, been incredible and in, in giving us a lot of his time today. We're going to be wrapping up soon, but... I want to ask Rich this uh, another macro level economic question, one part current but also historical. Um, and and off off in the break, I was I was starting to ask you, and and I, I said that you know globalization was promoted as this way to create military deterrence, uh, deterrent to war. Yep. All of these markets are entangled. There's economic incentive for people to collaborate and cooperate versus go and fight each other. We That's now been found not true in many respects. We didn't reach the calamity of World War One and World War II, but we have had continuous war ever since this globalization idea was instituted. And even, even more so, there seems to be a, a growing level of resent towards America and the U.S. dollar hegemony as a, a, a sort of... A, a, a conduit to being a bully on the playground out there on the world stage. Now, I don't agree with it necessarily. I think America's brought, I think America and the U.S. dollars brought a lot of good things around the world as well that goes unspoken, especially from these detractors. But now we have a, a, a sort of a emerging nationalist populist movement, populist movement, some would like to call it. And, and you even mentioned it more organically uh, from corporations and seeing that the trend is to, manufacture things close closer to where you sell them yeah. um, is it prudent for us when we think about uh, an academic idea like mckinder's um world island theory uh mckinder's uh, theory of the, the the world island um is it prudent for us to slowly but surely detach ourselves from the from whatever parts of the global economy that we can is there any benefit to an isolationist nation especially you know we talked about india you know india has its deal it has to deal with because it's on the landmass with china and russia and all these players we don't have those problems and i'm not saying we abandon india or any of our allies out there in the world taiwan uh, uh japan a lot of the nations in the south china sea after the after the world war ii became vietnam i mean they became our you know, we became a protectorate over them in many ways, South Korea, um, you know, our European allies, obviously, there's a huge jump ball, I think, right now for Africa and the resources there. Um, but but effectively, America has much of everything it needs, essentially, here in North, between North America and South America. 
So is it prudent to, to disentangle ourselves from these global markets over, over time as a, as a matter of national security and, and safety, even if we want to try and collaborate with them? Is that a policy prescription somebody like you would get on board with? Um, I, I, don't, I, I guess I wouldn't get on board with completely disentangling from the global economy. Um, I, I mentioned before, I thought maybe maybe the pendulum had gone too far in terms of globalization. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if we look at the entire post-World War II trend for the last 80 years or so, um, that the Washington consensus, if you will, of where you, you mentioned that you know the U.S. plays the world's police mm-hmm. uh, police you know, policemen, um, and in exchange for that, um, markets are open to U.S. goods. Um, you know the. U.S. is able to import cheaper product that it wanted. Um, we price things in U.S. dollars so that that capital gets recirculated into U.S. markets, which brings down the cost of capital for U.S. businesses and U.S. consumers. It's helped Americans broadly, though there have been pockets, as we've talked about, that have been hurt in that. But it's broadly helped the American economy grow over that period of time. It's helped the global economy grow, right? It's lifted more people globally out of poverty than at any time in history. Um, is it perfect? By no stretch is it perfect, right? Are there are there lots of places that could still do better? Absolutely. Is there lots of animosity as you pointed to? 100%, that's always gonna be the case. And and it's all directed at the US because the US was, was leading that fight. And so I think from the standpoint of the US should, in my opinion, you should, US should always look at this and say, what is our own self-interest in this? What are we going to, Really, it's a two-way street. What are we getting out of it? It wasn't really clear what we were getting out before. I do think that there's probably more of an argument now than ever of, of kind of pulling back because, like you said, we are self-sufficient from a food standpoint. We're self-sufficient from an energy standpoint. Um, we're self-sufficient from um, as we re- rebuild, um, with at least within North America, our industrial base will be self-sufficient from a manufacturing standpoint. So there is that argument, and then there's less than then we would be less inclined to see um, our own self-interest hurt around the world. Now, of course, we we you know we do have allies. We have allies around the world that we want to still stand stand behind and stand with. Um, there wouldn't be in that world though. There wouldn't be the need to be the global policeman and be involved in every single incident that there is. But there's a trade-off to that. And the trade-off to that is that that capital won't get recycled as much to the U.S., that our inflation will be higher, that our cost of money will be higher, that our economic growth will be slower. That may be a cost that we're willing to pay for these other benefits of being self-sufficient, et cetera. And that's a trade-off that we'll have to make, and people will make that trade-off every time they go to the ballot box, hopefully, if we have the right candidates in place. Yeah. Um, but it, it, there's no silver bullet solution, right? There, there's a solution where, yes, the positive is we're not involved in every co- conflict around the world creating animosity, but the trade-off to that is that we're, you know, our, 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 our cost of living is going to be higher, and so maybe we won't be able to have as much as we did before, and there's plenty, plenty of people that tell you we don't need as much as we have before, right? Um, anyone, I don't know, anyone that's cleaned out a a parent's house that, you know, I cleaned up my parents' house they lived in for 60 years and they had so much stuff. Them, it would be really nice if we didn't have so much stuff. I, I totally appreciate that. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think there's trade-offs and I think that's what we'll have to, as a people, we're going to have to answer that. I think the conditions are such that probably more so than any time in, in my lifetime or yours, um, we we're able to have that discussion where we don't need to be abroad because we do have self-sufficiency on so many levels. 
And so, you know, as a, as a parting shot here, and, and we want to have you back on a, a, in the very near future, so hopefully we can schedule some time for part two. I like to give my my uh, family and friends guests a two part a two part motif now, so we can we can you know go one talk about the current, maybe go back into how you grew up, be a little bit more casual, or some pressing issue that may pop up in the next week, something we didn't get to. And I I definitely wanted to get to your time on Wall Street and some of the things that you saw on Wall Street um, that were good, some that were bad, some that 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 you formed ideas around policy that could potentially help a young senatorial candidate think about how she he should be approaching Washington at a time where there are huge questions about Wall Street's involvement and influence over over politicians uh, and yeah. just, as well as just American life in general um, sure. but but in in parting here um, and as a as a segue to our part two start me off on on where you were during the the collapse uh, in, in 2009 and, uh, and and what was what, what what was it like then for you? Well, I, I mean, I'll just tell you what I told when I first moved to London. I moved to London in, in, uh, in the end, at the end of 2007. And when I moved there, I was taking over our European operations in London. And I told everybody, just so you guys know, that every time I make a big life move like this, the economy tends to collapse. And, and I said that because I moved to Tokyo in 1990, right at the top of the Tokyo bubble. Um, I, I moved into uh, trade in Asian markets. I'm in time for the Asian financial crisis. I moved back to the U.S. in time for the U.S. tech bubble. And so here I was making another life change right in time um, for what happens to be the great financial crisis. Uh, just, you know, and just so you know, I moved into academia full time right in time for COVID. So just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm able to hit a lot of these high points at, just at the right time, it seems. What was it like? I would say that in some ways it was the best place to be and in some ways it was the worst place to be. Um, it, it, London is a unique place in the financial markets that it's the kind of, well, people would say that New York is the center of the world because of, of New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ, et cetera. Um, from a geographic and time zone standpoint, London's the center of the world because you come in in the morning and the Asian market is still open and you can see how the Asian markets trades. And then by the time you're going home, you're, you're trading the U.S. market. And so in London, the market's never closed. Uh, you, the, the Asian market's open and the U.S. market's open. And so you you know the great thing is you get to see all of the different reactions that are going on and, and have a little bit more cohesive picture of how all the different investors in the different geographies across different asset classes are responding to the news and you I felt like I had a much better picture of what is going on and what the what how people might respond. That's a good thing. The bad thing is you end up working very very long hours. You never see your family, and and you're having to deal with 27 di different regulators in Europe, and not just one regulator in the United States. And so, it creates for a, for a very long uh, day, very stressful day, etc. So there are pros and cons, and I, I love to talk about it more. But I mean, I think that you know the financial crisis was kind of the you know the culmination of, of a lot of different issues. Were there Wall Street excesses? Absolutely, there were Wall Street excesses. Was there bad policy? before, during, and after the great financial crisis? Absolutely, there was bad policy. Were there bad decisions made by consumers along the way? Yes, there were, there was all of the above. Um, and was it a US only crisis or was it a global crisis? It was a global crisis because it was, a lot of the excesses we saw were coming from global um, capital providers and not just US capital providers. And so I think it really was the perfect storm. Um, and, and it was one that, um, you know, was, was you know, we're still feeling the ramifications of it, right? It was it was the the, the great financial crisis 
uh, you know, 15 years ago, and we're still feeling feeling the effects of it because we started this discussion talking about the Fed, and and that was the time when the Fed and all central banks really ratcheted up their involvement in financial markets and in our lives, and so we're still feeling those ramifications. And and I think much like the Great Depression um, in the 1930s. Um, really kind of colored generations of, of not just consumers, but generations of academics and policymakers. I think the great financial crisis is going to do exactly the same, and we'll be talking about it in 50 years and looking back at it. I think it was it was that monumental of a moment. Well, thank you, Rich. We appreciate the time. And tell us tell us a little bit about where you can we can find you on social media. If you you you, you wrote a book, am, am I correct? I, I didn't write a book, but you okay. can find me on you can find me on Twitter um, at Excel Richard is uh, E-X-C-E-L-L Richard um, on Twitter. I do a lot on LinkedIn. I'm out there every day on LinkedIn and I put what I call a chart of the day. I try, like I said, I try to demystify finance. I talk about what they're talking about on Wall Street and try to bring it down to layman's terms so they can understand um, what, what they need to do um, in terms of thinking about their 401k, et cetera. And then I write a weekly substack, which is for all audiences. Um, and it's called Stay Vigilant is the name of the Substack. Sub um, again, it, the goal here is just to demystify and make the topics that we talk about in the economy, in the finance and markets, we, we try to make them more accessible to everybody. A lot of that stuff, I started writing it for the sake of my students because I would talk about those things in class. Um, before I knew it, um, fellow professors, neighbors, friends, former colleagues, everyone was saying, hey, I like what you're doing. Can you do a little bit more of it? And so I have. And and uh, I get no, I, I get no material benefit. I get a lot of benefit though from from helping kind of spread the good word, if you will, um, of just making people a bit smarter. The great Richard Excel, ladies and gentlemen, we appreciate your time today, brother. We hope we'll get you back soon to give us more updates and, and more perspectives and insights on the world of finance and economics. We wish you well in teaching your class there in, in the great city of Chicago. Uh, stay safe, stay warm as the as the autumn and the winter approaches. We got a cold one ahead of us, despite all of the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the global warming never gets warm enough in Chicago and Minneapolis in the winter for us. Uh, I invite global warming. It would be great for us, right? Um, but, but we appreciate you, brother. Appreciate your time. Um, please join us again. Uh, for everybody else out there, the fight continues. Godspeed. Thanks, Royce. Thanks for being here.